Friends, it is time for our weekly gathering, our Week in IndyCar listener Q&A, driven by you and all the things you send in for us to discuss, whether they are indeed questions or comments or rants. I told you how much I love the rants, provided they're not 17 pages long, provided they're a little bit compact. The rants, actually, they're the ones I love the most. Uh, I'm Marshall Pruitt. Again, we do this weekly at least once. This week, we're just doing one. Things start to pick up a little bit. We might get back to doing two a week based on the volumes of questions y'all send in. This list compiled by our friend and listener, Tim Falkowitz. Greatly appreciate him. Got some fun for you today. A lot of technical questions, so that I'm looking forward to, and a whole bunch of other stuff. First order of business every week, it's to say massive thank you to Cooper Tires, sponsors of the Road to Indy, presented by Cooper Tires. That's what we say about the Road to Indy. The Justice Brothers, rather amazing automotive chemicals and lubricants. By the way, their little products were used as part of Wayne Taylor Racing's victory, the Rolex 24 Daytona. That's right. The same amazing Justice Brothers logo, the crest that we have on our podcast. Well, that was carried on the trusty Wayne Taylor Racing number 10 ARX 05 Acura DPI. And we close of the trio of pillars that support our show. That is Toronto Motorsports. Yes, they're Canadian. That means they're nice. That means they're maple scented. That means they make all kinds of great memorabilia. TorontoMotorsports.com. All the t-shirts, all the stickers, all the everything affiliated with our show and more. Fine folks up there. Pay them a visit, please. They'll make you laugh. We'll start off quickly and briefly by mentioning, (sighs) got in the car today to head to my wife's physical therapy. And the last time we ventured out was Friday, got home Friday evening. And for the first time in a really, really long time, had a very relaxing weekend, did a whole lot of not much, actually spent a fair amount of time in the office trying to organize things. Things are getting a little bit untidy. Number of boxes had showed up over the last couple of months with press kits and magazines and just some really cool stuff from some really kind, kind people. Spent some time organizing that. Got some of the charity bits and pieces that going to need to get going again here shortly. Uh, set in one little area so we'll get that going so just had a really nice weekend and i mentioned this because when we got in the car to drive to physical therapy today just struck me wow feels like we haven't been here in this car moving for days like a long time not just two and it was really nice so we haven't had that in a while and we spent most of yesterday sunday just hanging out, just being together, being husband and wife on Valentine's Day. I know that probably sounds really ordinary uh, without belaboring the point or going uh, into detail any more than you probably want to hear. We don't get a chance to do that too much. So just a really nice weekend. So hope you all had a, a fairly awesome weekend as well. Two quick items maybe to mention up front about racing in general before your questions. First one. I hear, we'll see if my ears are attuned correctly or not, that for those of you who have asked many, many times over, and deservedly so, hey, IndyCar, uh, boy, 
Uh, there sure is going to be a long time between your last race and your first race of the new season. You did that IndyCar iRacing Challenge deal last year during the shutdown. Uh, have you forgotten about it? Have heard that indeed we will have a brief return in March, a three-round IndyCar iRacing Challenge type deal is what I've heard about, bearing in mind that if things had gone normally, we would be approximately one month out from the start of the new uh, 2021, as I almost forget the year, NTT IndyCar Series season. Indeed, we are more than two months out. So the idea of filling some of that unintended gap with St. Petersburg being moved, Barber being pushed back a week, uh, some of the changes in mind, filling that with some iRacing, whether you are or are not a fan of iRacing, seems like not a bad idea instead of just two months of dead air. So hopefully we'll find out more about that, provided it goes forward. Other item, just one that has been interesting to track and follow, all without official confirmation, all without official press release. Um, how do I put this? I've heard from an impeccable source uh, that our man Cody Ware of whom many of you have asked questions about, uh, of which I've mentioned a few IndyCar drivers have shared concerns about. Uh, so he's going to be in the 51 entry, the Rick Ware racing number 51, doing the ovals with Romain Groschon, right? So, oh boy, a guy who's never done a uh, oval race in an open-wheel car that any of us know of at Texas. That sounds frightening. Shared that last week. Received an update uh, on Saturday in a phone call that came in from uh, somewhere in the vicinity of Daytona Beach, Florida, uh, sharing some insight that indeed, when we do hopefully hear officially about Cody Ware's activities for the upcoming season, he indeed will not be doing ovals. Uh, now, granted, does he end up doing the Indy 500? I don't know. Uh, we'll find out. But in terms of Cody being Romain's teammate in the same car, filling the gaps where Romain is not doing ovals, uh, have it on pretty good account that, indeed, that will not be Cody. So I know someone asked, whether it was last week or the week before, uh, hey, great to have Romain confirmed. We got Ed Jones confirmed. How many total Dale Coin Racing drivers? we're going to have this year sounds like the number at minimum is going to be four so what i love about this because hey keeps the silly season rolling a little bit it's that all right well we know cody is going to be doing some driving in the number 52 entry mentioned last week we've heard that detroit for sure is on that list the doubleheader in detroit sounds like he's going to be focused on road and street courses don't know what that whole calendar will be for him but who's going to fill the 51 on the ovals could that be a pietro fittipaldi could that be a santino ferrucci who could that be who might it be could it be carlos muñoz could it be who knows as my voice crackles for some reason going through puberty again y'all um what's that gonna be so hey we got a little bit of extra intrigue to follow here as it appears, indeed, there's someone to put in the car in the ovals. 
in the Romat Mobile. And then we also need to find out how many races Cody will be doing road and street course wise in the number 52. That's it. I think I got one or two other things brewing that aren't quite ready to be mentioned. So let us get some music bed rocking. Let's get into your Q&A here. Been doing about 90 minute-ish shows of late. We're going to do our best to stick to that. Going to crack this open. Jeremiah Morrell and Mr. Zerneski as well. Two questions related to Michael McDowell's victory at the Daytona 500 yesterday. A little bit of inside. I don't know if it's humor, but it's something. So sat down to watch the start of it, something I normally do, then go do something else for 15 hours, then come back and watch the finished last 10, 20 laps, whatever. Got to the big, huge crash lap 15 lap 16 whatever daytona 500 carnage the big one happened then we had the uh, rain delay checked back in i actually just got up and came back into the office here to do more stuff while walking back and forth across the living room every couple hours would just check in and see what's going on look like they're playing some old stuff from last year to kill the time all right cool whatever Settle down for the evening. My wife and I enjoy some Netflix, uh, enjoy a little bit of Mandalorian, and hey, cool, clearly bad weather. They're going to be running this again, finishing it tomorrow and Monday. And once we're done with the Mandalorian, getting ready to go to bed, uh, switch the TV back from uh, streaming solutions to cable and saw at the bottom of the scroll on ESPN, Michael McDowell wins the freaking Daytona 500. I, I'm not kidding. I had to go and check about four different sources because it just seemed, A, I couldn't believe that the race was run. B, I couldn't believe that I missed uh, many, you know, 450 miles or whatever it was of, competition had no clue it was actually going on and then to find out that it was won by the 2004 star mazda champion as i tweeted out today we would call him the 2004 indy pro 2000 champ right michael mcdowell the underdog of underdogs the guy who should have had a a decent uh long and decent career in open wheel uh, instead rerouted to NASCAR, found opportunities there, but never one that led any of us to believe he'd be in victory lane. And he wins the freaking thing. So just had to share. I'm sure some of you might have had similar kind of like uh, check out, check back in, and then cannot believe the words you're reading or seeing on the screen. Uh, let's see. So Jeremiah, you say uh, he also picked up a couple starts in the Rocket Sports entry, replacing Ryan Hunter Ray in 2005. Any, any memories of his time coming up through the junior formula ranks or indie cars, sports cars? Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, young Mr. McDowell, uh, he was indeed a pretty darn serious talent. Uh, I mean, like real, <laughs> uh, a real talent that, again, uh, I'll be super honest, I don't know if I ever saw him in junior open wheel and said future IndyCar champion, future Indy 500 winner, that would be a lie. But I did see him as 
a quality driver, a serviceable driver, and I know serviceable sounds a little bit impolite, but he struck me as someone who, if we're looking at modern careers, right, where where would he fit? Who could he be in modern terms, right? I'd say if we're talking kind of youth uh, early into the sport, I'd say probably he and Connor Daly, a lot in common. Uh, New Garden looked a little bit extra, so I wouldn't quite put him at the New Garden level, but he definitely was a early 2000s, mid-2000s Connor type. Um, Who else? I'm just trying to look and think out loud here. Uh, Jack Harvey-ish, right? Um, Someone that had skills we knew was going to be good, didn't necessarily have a total feel as to whether we're talking a, a race winner uh, or someone who would just be, you know, there, thereabouts, high quality the whole time, right? Quality is a, a big thing we need to attach to McDowell. Just not sure if he's going to be a guy that, you know, if he ends his career 10 or 15-year IndyCar career with a couple of wins, don't think anyone would be surprised. Just also don't think anyone was expecting him to or would have expected him to come in and just mop the floor with people. So guy who got a chance to do a couple of champ car starts, right? I think he did two races to close the year. Did well, right? Not amazingly. Also wasn't driving for the dominant team, Rocket Sports, by no means a dominant team. But again, I would say a guy who proved that he belongs and could have had a very good career if that's how things had turned out in open wheel. Some of you may remember, this is the fun part, and not really fun. That would be, hey, remember a couple years ago, speaking of Rocket Sports, where they wrote a very large multi-million dollar check to ryan hunter ray well that's because good old rocket sports decided to take michael mcdowell to finish that 2005 season take his money even though our man ryan hunter ray had a no cut contract no anything contract can't get rid of me can't do anything gotta put me in the car at every round they did not and it took him, whatever it was, 12 years, 8, 10, 12 years, however many it was, to keep fighting and pushing and you name it, suing Rocket Sports, finally got paid. And that's all because Rocket Sports chose to put Mr. McDowell in the car. Oh, boy. Uh, so, yeah, funny how that all pans out. Can't believe that Hunter Ray would have any beef or issue with uh, McDowell winning the race. I'm sure he'd be happy for him. Ultimately, you can't blame him for the team, um, the Rocket Sports team doing what they did. But regardless, he's a guy. I watched him, saw him run in Pro Mazda. He was kind of in that youngish, mid-tier, road-to-indie type hot dog scenario. Of course, at this point in time, just to close, there was no road-to-indie. What we have today is a formal ladder, three tiers, connected straight to the series. Didn't have that. 
time we had both Champ Car and the Indy Racing League 2005, the IRL renamed itself the IndyCar Series. So while this is going on, he won that title, actually, the uh, Star Mazda title in 2004. It was still the IRL. We did, though, have very different scenarios with the Atlantic Series being connected to Kart and Champ Car, the Infinity Pro Series. There was no longer an Indy Light Series. It'd be renamed Indy Lights later. But the Infinity Pro Series was the IRL's thing. Um, Michael winning Star Mazda, that was aligned more on the uh, old cart slash champ car ladder. So with him doing what he did and winning that 2004 title and having watched him do that, damn good. Just damn, damn good. Maybe little caveat here to throw in. I mean, he was stupendously good i think he again i top of my head i think he finished runner-up in 2003 something like that uh in star mazda then won the title the following year would i say this was the strongest deepest uh star mazda championship grid ever in the history of forever i don't know if i'd go that far there were some very talented drivers, though. Don't, again, don't get me wrong. Just wasn't, you know, uh, it was not the craziest, toughest thing to accomplish. Today, yeah, there are some nasty, nasty folks, but could name a couple of the folks that won titles after him, some that you may know and, and remember, things starting to get a little bit stiffer opposition-wise. Dane Cameron's one of them for sure. Rafa Matos. Um, just say that, yeah, someone we we need to respect didn't really get the chance to show all of his capabilities in open wheel, though. So that's the only downside, but I got to admit that he's a Daytona 500 winner. Uh, boy, that's just the best thing in the world for him. Uh, young Mr. Zerneski, you on a similar trend, say after seeing McDowell's upset victory, what are some of the most surprising wins you remember in IndyCar? All right. Well, I think the standard answer is always going to be 2011 Indy 500. But if I had to add to that, if I'm thinking crazy, wacky, come on, man. Are you serious? What? Uh, Grumpy Cat, a.k.a. Carlos Huertas, winning at Houston? Was that 2012? 2013, I apologize. I'm forgetting uh, just a little bit. It's been just a little while. 2014. Uh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Grumpy Cat won at Houston. Yeah. Oh, boy. I was there for that, uh, as were hopefully some of you as well. Um, yeah, that was a little bit crazy. Uh, rain race, strategy race, and I hold no grudges against Grumpy Cat. I miss Grumpy Cat. He was hilarious. That guy's humor was dark and very sharp. Oh, man, he'd cut you up quickly if you weren't careful. He won. Thanks to a, a time-certain, time-shortened race, Dale Coyne being a bit of a master of counting backwards 
and plotting strategy from there. And yeah, so Grumpy Cat, the fact that, right, we can think of all the people who've won in IndyCar. No, Danica Patrick, for example, gets worn out for only winning a single race after however many years she did. I'm not saying this to be mean or mocking, but she is in the same company as Carlos Huertas, right? Uh, who else? What else can I think of? Uh, maybe go back to 91, right? John Andretti's one win in IndyCar. Surfer's Paradise season opener, brand new. Jim Hall, Pennzoil, Lola, the Hall VDS team. I mean, yeah, granted, some exceptional circumstances there as well. Crazy rain, so on and so forth. This is one where, just like Grumpy Cat, was never someone anyone predicted other than himself and maybe his mom or dad predicted to win a race. There was nobody expecting the Hall VDS team on their debut, and I realize they've been around before, but on their return to IndyCar to win the darn thing. Oh, I remember watching that, I think, live. I think live. I know I still have the race saved on VHS videotape from it running originally. That's another one that just jumped out as a, what? No way. So that was that was a lot of, uh, a lot of fun. I mean, it definitely felt like a, not just an underdog thing, but just so much of an upset thing that no one expected. So we're, let's close on one more. And it comes to mind because the win was at my team's expense, but it, it's just more of a surprise. And so for those of you who remember the early days of the Earl, the IRL, the good old Indy Racing League, you will probably know the name Billy Boat. He was a sprint car, midget, short track. Oh, man, badass of bad asses. Truly, guy was, is just phenomenal. And so, hey, let's go do an all-oval IndyCar series. Guy was just made for it. Perfect. Truly perfect. Drove for AJ Foyt for a couple years, two, three, four years, something like that. Uh, IRL days, a lot of folks bounced around a little bit, so I know that uh, Billy did the same. But he won one race, and I should say it wasn't an upset. So maybe I'm going a little bit of a different direction here to close this opening topic on this week's show. We tend to visit a little bit with the first topic. He won at Texas Motor Speedway. 1998 uh, our little Genoa racing thomas knapp motorsports team with greg ray we're just coming off of qualifying in the front row for the indy 500 moved to texas for the next round and we led we chased we chased we were so close we were in the grass trying to get by billy we had made a mistake on our gearing our top gear was just a little bit too short so our man greg ray at his home race in texas not too far from where he lives in plano uh we were just banging off the rev limiter not too far past start finish and you know of the places to pass at texas 
it's turn one and turn three. And those are the places where you need that extra speed and those extra revs. And we messed up. We did not give him the revs that he needed. He had the power, just did not have the top speed to get by Billy Boat. So Billy won. We finished, you know, point zero 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 nothing behind him. And we were really bummed because we felt like this was probably our best chance to get a victory, not just that year, but probably ever. And the team didn't last beyond that. It closed down at the end of the year. There you go. Whatever. Okay. I just mentioned this. Maybe not. Well, the Billy Boat story is really strange to me, Jeff. And that's because this is a guy who, if you were around, you remember him in that green Conseco insurance sponsored AJ Foyt car. It feels like the guy was always on pole. And at least in my head, the guy is just always up front, right? So not just pole position, but like just always there, always on the podium and winning. He won a single race, Jeff. <laughs> that is a giant upset and surprise to me. Looking back, this guy who had podium after podium after podium, uh, top fives all over the place won a single race so that the that's the thing to me that is a little fluky uh, in my career indy car career both cart and the irl never won a race that second with greg was our best finish in 98 i think i forget whether we were second or third with jacques lazier in 2001 when i was with sam schmidt's team and what those would have been the best finishes of my career just on the team side. Um, but it just reminds me as well, like, yeah, uh, fluky stuff. Even those who want a single race still feel like they've won a lot more. And maybe even some of us who didn't win a race feels like, boy, we were so much farther away. It's just funny to look and see like a guy in my head, who I assume just had 10 wins. He had one. Maybe they always felt really far away from Billy as well. So there you go, Jeff. There you go, Jeremiah. We're going to roll into a couple of questions here before we get into a longer thread on technical stuff, technical questions, and I'll do my best to not embarrass myself. Uh, let's see. Where do we go here before those? Michael Brennan, Marshall, NASCAR recently came out with their I Am NASCAR commercials. Do they remember the flop of IndyCar with that? Marketing genius or a failure to do two minutes of research? Your thoughts? Uh, thanks for all you do for us fans and continue prayers of healing for Mrs. Pruitt and yourself. Ah, thank you, Michael. Uh, that's really sweet. Yeah. So <laughs> of the things that I did over the weekend to clean up in the office, one of them was to put some little uh, small little hanger sticker adhesive guys on the back of the main door to the office here, AKA uh, the second bedroom that's been used, turned into an office. Um, and on that, one of those little hangers, I put a fresh, I am indie uh, hat that I'll wear at some point in time. So I would say it's genius because enough time has passed to where the most atrocious racing related song of all time has been forgotten. Um, especially by many of us. Actually, take that back. We've never forgotten it. It just doesn't sting as much because it was so bad in IndyCar. Uh, it was never a thing in NASCAR. 
And I would say for all the generations of NASCAR fans who continue to watch, I would assume if they knew about it, they didn't care about it. And it's been so long, it's probably an, an afterthought. And for the many, many, many new fans that they have courted since I am indie, I would say that pff, they have no idea about it and therefore doesn't matter. So I had a quick little thought like yours when I saw the very first commercial saw how it was executed and said, yeah, that's how you do it. That is how you do it. If you could go back in time, get rid of Gene Simmons, lazy ass, terrible (laughs) singing, music creating guy, and just do something like this, I think you win. I think if there wasn't a past precedent, uh, and I guess precedent wouldn't naturally include past so it's a little uh hashtag me personally uh type execution there if indycar could go back in time and didn't already have an i am indy in place and followed nascar's theme here if nascar never done it but somehow had a feeling how nascar did it i don't know if indycar were to do this today in a similar way and had no baggage behind it i think it'd be very popular i think folks would love it we're as I mentioned about two months away from the start of the season, we will see what IndyCar and NBC sports have or have not come up with in terms of this kind of stuff. I'm hoping there's something Michael. Let me stay here for just a sec, just, just a sec. So there's the, the school of thought that this is all marketing, right? The way you win is marketing. I don't believe that. I'm not a, not a believer in that, that just simply the exercise of marketing a racing series is the thing that gets you tons of fans, tons of eyeballs watching on the television or through streaming, and that's how you win. I know that my old pal Sean Heckman, those know him. Those of you who know him from Dinner with Racers and whatnot, Sean is of the same exact mind, that marketing, more marketing, more marketing, I know he's made a, it's been a running joke with his podcast for a while, but well before that, it was a running joke as well. That, yeah, boy, all IndyCar needs to do, or name the series. That's a little bit underperforming. All they need is advertising, marketing. Yeah, I just need a good idea. And boy, boy, problem solved. The world's going to watch. It's not how it works uh, anymore, at least. Maybe when it was brand new and no one knew about it. IndyCar is more than 100 years old. It's known. But I do wonder, when I look at something, Michael, like this I Am NASCAR campaign, I don't know if it does anything to bring in tons of new audiences, but I have to assume it sure makes the one that they have feel really good and really proud about being part of NASCAR. Uh, The tribal aspect of it right these are my people this is my tribe i love it i'm not giving it up for those who might be getting a little old or maybe those who are just young and were never all that bought in to begin with you know these kinds of things these overtures can't hurt that make you feel good and proud about the thing that you like seems feels like boy we spend a lot of time every day reading a lot of critical nasty Stuff written about everything, duh, but the thing you like, we hear a lot about, hear a lot from newer fans, 
asking questions like, Hey, I just started watching this a year or two or three ago, but everyone tells me this is garbage and that everything was so much better before when maybe I wasn't alive. (laughs) So, uh, am I just dumb? Why am I watching this? If y'all are telling me it's terrible and a shadow of its former self, um, maybe things that just celebrate those who are here, maybe things that cause folks to feel that blood just pumping through their veins, being proud of it, wanting to say it, wanting to share it, or just loving the vibe. Those kinds of things that create loyalty or or ensure loyalty remains because we all feel like we're a part of the same thing. I just, I really hope IndyCar is thinking big and thinking community and thinking tribe and building upon it and keeping the ones that they got and making those who are have seen the Rolex 24 Daytona this year and may have liked it, who just watched the Daytona 500. Uh, there's going to be a fair amount of racing that happens before we get to the opening IndyCar race, the middle, actually the second half of April. Um, I'm just hoping that they do, Michael. Uh, it feels like on the television front, documentary front, uh, when it comes to visual communications with its audience and its future potential and desired audience, man, it just feels like IndyCar, unfortunately, is many laps down. So I'm hoping to see visual evidence that I am 100% wrong and that, nope, we got great stuff in the works, not just a 30-second TV ad, but take a look at this streaming service at this stage of the year, and we're going to have something new for you. We're going to have something here and there and the other. Yeah, even if it's just kind of keeping up with the Joneses thing, Michael, right? None of it's original. (laughs) We're just copying all the things we like most. Drive to survive, Indy. Uh, You name it. I don't care if it's just copying stuff. Uh, Give folks a reason to dive in, believe, support, B, I am indie all over again, even if they never were in the beginning. Uh, Hrisha Despond, how you doing, brother? Uh, thanks for your tweets today, by the way. Um, I know that our pal Arnie Sreben from IndyCar answered some of this, but I'm going to answer it for everyone. Uh, it says, thoughts on Miles Rowe winning the Force Indie Gong Show. He says, what's a reasonable expectation for him this season? Answer that first. Next part is a... Uh, um, resubmission from last week hard to pinpoint exactly where i think miles is going to fare what i don't know things that i'm hoping to learn here soon rishi is what kind of support is around miles in terms of driver development if we are speaking about the force indie team Mm, it's pretty amazing in that we have some brand new crew that have been hired African-American crew hired development on that front. Just like they're trying to develop miles. There's team Penske side. I think looking after the greater operations, that's going to be very important, very important for him 
working with truly battle-hardened, grade-A veterans. That's going to help him immensely. What I don't know, and the part that I need to learn about is this. While it's not the case with every single Road to Indy team, it's almost a universal truism that each team has some form of wise veteran driver, whether it's an owner, a team manager, a coach, a something. What I don't know is who will indeed be working with Miles that isn't his race engineer that would help him on the driving development side. I don't know where Miles is at in his driving development, right? We know that he hasn't raced for a couple years. We know that there's clearly significant potential within him, but it is largely untapped and undeveloped. Well, the Force Indy USF 2000 team, the first step on the road to Indy, of course, that's where you start to get a feel, (laughs) right? It's uh, freshman football level. It's freshman basketball level. You go, great, cool, your first year. Uh, Yeah, you'd be lucky if you get off the bench. Of course, we know he's going to go race. He's going to go learn. But it's that stage in the road to Indy where you find these things out. What I'm hoping, knowing that he's a little bit of an odd character in the, in the sense that he's not following multiple years of consistent growth up from carts to wherever to where he is right now, building upon momentum, building upon constant learning, and just adding new levels to his skills. He's coming in cold, having not raced, having not done much in the way of wings and slicks type driving a lot to learn. So with most road to indie teams, however the person gets there, whatever the mechanism is, you tend to have a wise person, veteran skilled driver saying, no, no, let's not do it that way. Let's do it this way. No young man, no young lady. We are going to do this instead of that. Who is that person going to be? And so This is why Hrishi, for right now, it's hard to say what I expect from him because without that person, um, this is going to be really tough. So we know that Rod Reed is in charge of the program. He is not a professional driving development person. Uh, I don't know if he's done any racing, but again, uh, in the case of a number of teams, you have the team owner who's the one with that experience who can say, nope. I am used to coaching people at the pro level because I was a pro driver or similar. Don't believe that that exists there. Um, There's going to be a lot of smart people on the crew side. But again, who's going to be the one coaching up miles driver to driver? Once I get a better idea on that, Hrishi, I'll try and uh, give you a better answer or throw it back in. Um, But I can tell you that I think vehicle... Operation and engineering side with Team Penske involved, it should be pretty good. So that's maybe the, the other side of this that I think those who know are going to be saying, hey, man, I know the name of the team is Force Indy, but you've got Penske people involved. This is a Roger Penske created 
team, I mean, he's going to be fighting the notion that he's a Team Penske driver and has the best of everything like a Team Penske IndyCar, NASCAR, whatever driver. And so anything less than winning every single round, for those who might want to use that, could probably be a hard thing to knock back when those assertions are made. So a little bit more info needed on my side. We'll try and get back to you on this. Uh, the part that I appreciate Arnie Sereben's help with from IndyCar, your resubmission talking about uh, IndyCar and IMS posted a number of things regarding women and girls in sports day. You mentioned, but nothing for Black History Month. Did I miss something, or does IndyCar have any plans to celebrate Black History Month? Uh, He says, and he's speaking to me on this, I know for sure. I know some people don't like performative social media slacktivism, but in this day and age, it's the minimum standard for corporate activism, and it looks worse if you don't do it. Briefly here, uh, I am aware, and I know Arnie spoke to it a little bit on the tweeters. Uh, I know that IndyCar has done interviews and there are video um, segments with Willie T. Ribs and George Mack. I know this because I have seen one of them and was told by Arnie that there's another. I also know that those were taking place, Hrishi, because my pal, the good man, that is IndyCar VP of Communications Dave First, reached out in the latter stages of January and asked for both Willie T. and George's contact information so that he could reach out to them and so that IndyCar could do not just something, but multiple things to celebrate Black History Month. So I didn't ask, because I didn't think to ask of it in order to really stand out as a thing to ask at the time. I'll just share this quick observation. Knowing that our world in the U.S. changed considerably halfway through last year with the murder of George Floyd and the overall social reckoning that took place in the country and continues to take place just at a much slower pace and much lower volume. There's, I guess I could say, not a surprise that prior to this IndyCar, to my knowledge, I don't recall any anything really about Black History Month being a thing. But I would say since Davey was hired... Since Davey has come in and we've had this social reckoning and and a greater desire among more Americans, certainly not all, but more Americans to celebrate contributions of people of color and women to a higher degree than I can recall in my lifetime. It does not surprise me that at Davey's first opportunity, uh, I forget when he came into IndyCar, but it was past Black History Month last year. It does not surprise me, knowing Davey, he is a very good man, and there are good men and women that work in the communications department alongside him before he got there, and hopefully they'll be there for a long time as well. Um, It doesn't surprise me, though, that... 
I don't know whether it's an initiative or a request that came down from somewhere else within IndyCar IMS, or if this is just something that Davey on his own said, hey, uh, I want to do this. But I can tell you, Rishi, that the fact that Davey was reaching out saying, hi, could you help put me in contact with you know folks that I know you know uh, so that we, I, as IndyCar, we can do something to honor and celebrate? The fact that Davey was the guy doing that doesn't surprise me at all. He That's just... So, whether he, it was his idea or someone else's, I just know that this fits very much Dave. And I would expect this to continue. Another little use of the word caveat here. Not a ton of black history in IndyCar to draw from. So I can't tell you if this is going to be a rich vein for years and years and years and years to come. But I would say with effort, it could and should be. There have been not dozens, but there certainly have been a number of African-American crew members over the years, for sure. Uh, Championship winning grade as well. There are many names that come to mind on the crew side that could certainly be celebrated. Uh, Know for sure that there are numerous African-American sprint, midget, dirt, short track drivers throughout the last hundred plus years that could be honored and celebrated. So overall... I think that this is a great evolution and I hope that it continues where I will just throw in a closing thought here. Hrishi. Sometimes when you look at some other series, some that have already raced this year and you go, huh, not sure I've seen anything from you. I know for sure that not every communications department has the same volume of staff. Also, don't necessarily have the same interests. Uh, Would also say that I've heard the excuse, and it is an excuse, but this is what I wanted to close with. The, well, if we're going to celebrate Black History Month, does that mean we got to celebrate all the other things? Yeah, I'd hope so. <laughs> not because, you, again, you quote have to and not the performative stuff like you mentioned. But, hey, whether it is, as you said, the Women and Girls in Sports Day. I mean, we need more than a day. <laughs> we need months and months. Whether it is the contributions of Asian Americans, uh, Hispanic Run down the list. We've had Native American, IndyCar involvement. We've had, you name it, whether it is gay pride, whether it is, I'm just trying to think of the general things that get celebrated. Run across the lists. I know some of it might sound tone deaf, but there are a lot of folks, whether it is Irish American, Italian American, there's a lot of, although hyphens don't really get used so much anymore. It's a wide, wide array of participation in IndyCar and other sports. 
but there's a, a fairly wide array of participation in achievements that can be celebrated. I know that not a lot of it falls in the category of people of color, sadly, but there are absolutely uh, Indian Americans. There are Iranian Americans, Iraqi Americans, run down the Dash Americans list. There's lots. Kiwis, Aussies, I mean, I Bahamians, is that correct? Bahamians, I think. I just think that might be a little bit cool, and maybe some would think it's ridiculous, but, you know, ha. all right, sorry for the kind of closing generalism here. I think a lot of us, certainly far more people than my wife and I, have had a pretty damn hard time over the past year, year and a half, however long. I, as I get a little bit older, and this is more like not years older, but like months older, my mindset has just evolved rapidly, especially since COVID-19. But, you know, more, if I had to really put a pin and mark it on a calendar, it'd probably be uh, start of September of 2018 when we learned about my wife's breast cancer. Um, add in COVID and everything that's hit so many people unexpectedly since 2020. And I just look at so much of life, Hrishi, as ways we can make people happier. Just what are the things that make you smile? What are the things we can celebrate? The revelry we can do individually or even better together. So I don't want to make this sound too kind of Pollyanna, whatever, whatever. But if you were to go back and look at the amount of things that I've written on Racer, for example, since uh, September of 2018, the amount of rants and boy, this thing pisses me off. And why are they doing that? And why aren't they doing this? And what the hell? You'll note that the number of those has gone down drastically. And it's not because many of these things fail to piss me off or occur to me. I could probably write something grumpy every week about something in our sport and have it be fairly legitimate, maybe fairly. Um, but my mindset in terms of what I want to produce and want to deliver has shifted a lot based on brand new experiences at home of, okay, yeah, that thing does annoy me and boy, that's lame. And boy, the series needs to do this thing better, but eh, Am I really going to spend hours of my life writing that just because? Does it really mean anything? Is there any real value to it? Uh, on the scale of things that, on the brand new scale of things that I consider to be urgent, important, and really needing attention. Yeah, that's been the uh, that's been the kick in the nuts. That has been the new perspective. Um, so. Anyways, I just share all this. I don't know if it means anything, but uh, I just look at this and say, yeah, maybe we can just spend more time celebrating. And if IndyCar wants to, if Davey wants to, and Arnie and Kate and whomever else, if they want to, I bet you they can find some pretty cool stuff at least once a week to put out uh, that helps us to do that. All right, we're going to move into a fun and fairly busy stretch here 
of technical questions. Uh, I hope I don't have really lame answers for all them. So let's take a look. All righty. Pete Hernandez says, one more question for you. All right, Pete, I know you got a couple here. Uh, actually, I'm going to move down to your first one, uh, and then I'll move up to your second one. Says, Marshall, any reason why IndyCar hasn't adopted an inline four-cylinder formula for the new hybrid cars? Seems like a great idea. Most manufacturers have a turbo inline four in their lineup. They can help uh, shed some pounds from the cars uh, once the hybrid component is implemented in their historical precedence. As one of the most iconic IndyCar engines, the Offy was also an inline four. Curious to get your thoughts. I love me some inline four-cylinder turbos. Pete, I have always. Would just say here with where IndyCar is trying to go with their new formula and make it not one that costs the manufacturers a quadrillion dollars going to a larger displacement twin turbo v6 where you've got six cylinders if you divide the initial goal of 800 horsepower by six i know they want to get it up to about 900 towards the end of the formula as the great audi sports car engine guru ulrich Beretsky once told me when i asked a similar question he said it is a lot easier to ask more cylinders to spread the horsepower load than fewer. And so that's the really basic answer, Pete. Knowing that IndyCar wants to be up to 900 horsepower by the end of this next formula, asking a four-cylinder motor to do that could be done. The costs to do it, though, with the lifespan and longevity they call for, that's where this makes it pretty much an impossible task. They can make 900 horsepower with a four-cylinder motor. That's not the issue. It's the how long does it last? Does it last thousands of miles? No, it does not. Unless the thing is just made out of money. (laughs) It's just made out of pure money uh, because everything you would have to do to achieve the reliability to make that kind of power and have it last for thousands of miles. That's where the, the cost matrix to set, use a term that sounds far too serious. That's where things spin out of control, Pete. So that's why we don't have it. Um, I love four cylinder turbos watched formula one back in the day in the eighties where the BMWs were the Kings of power making Lord knows how much more than their dinos could actually measure well over a thousand horsepower. And these are things that in their day and age cost a ton of money and were completely disposable, (laughs) put in qualifying engines that would basically get thrown away and junked afterwards, put in race motors that would be detuned a bit, but would make still make outrageous power and be more or less thrown away afterwards. So that's why, we aren't headed towards four cylinders, unfortunately. Uh, we're going to go up to your top question here. It says, with Red Bull Advanced Technologies and Areca, that being the sports car chassis supplier, preparing a hydrogen entry for Le Mans 2024, an electric propulsion seemingly the future of the automobile, 
do you think it's time for IndyCar to take a bold leap forwards and embrace this hydrogen technology? He says, hydrogen electric seems like the best way to propel a car in a long-distance race without an internal combustion engine. Toyota's just released the Mirage, a road-going hydrogen model in the U.S., so manufacturers are actively developing the technology. Seems like Indy would be a great place to help develop and improve this for the road. Um, he also he closed with saying, uh, perhaps this is the path Nikar should take, the upcoming hybrid formula to rekindle a sense of true innovation in the sport. I hear you, Pete. I hear you. I hear you. A little bit of clarity on the Red Bull and the Eureka stuff, the 24 Hours of Le Mans type stuff, the, the prototype, the hydrogen prototype. This is all spec stuff. Uh, this is not innovation. It's bringing a new technology to motor racing, but it's not actual go out there and innovate once it gets here. I know you mentioned the Mirage. I am unaware of multiple menu of a significant number of manufacturers really going heavy into hydrogen in a short-term timely capacity. Knowing that we are two years away from this new formula, I am unaware of a boom of hydrogen cars meant to hit in the next two years, three, four, five. I hear more and more of full electric is on the way. Hybrid electric for sure is going to be the bridge to get there. But I hear a lot more about electricity being the form of propulsion than hydrogen. So I would say no. I would say I don't see the value here because I'm not hearing enough, reading enough from auto manufacturers saying, Man, of all the things we could go play with and develop in racing that would really feed what we're doing in the road car world, the things we're going to be selling here shortly, hydrogen's the one. I just don't hear it, Pete. I really don't. So I wouldn't I wouldn't confuse some doing something with the industry doing something. Last quick thing. We spoke about this, I think, on last week's episode of my weekend sports car show I do with my pal Graham Goodwin from DailySportsCar.com. The note that I offered there on this topic of Red Bull Advanced Technologies, the folks who make IndyCar's AeroScreen, and Areca coming together to do this with this ACO, WC, Le Mans type commission to do it with hydrogen it just feels late. It feels like they're years behind. The last time I, again, this is just my feeling. By no means is it accurate, nor does it represent or reflect anything that is real within the auto industry. I just can only tell you as an outside observer, it's been a couple of years since I really felt like hydrogen was a buzz. Wow. Okay. Boy, big future. This could be something. Let's get going, everybody. Feels like late to the party admittedly a little bit like indycar's move to hybrid internal combustion engine and kinetic energy recovery system feels a lot like the same thing here so it will be interesting when it comes out it will certainly be something that sets a new trend for the series where it's happening i would not necessarily confuse it with the auto industry going whoa (laughs) Uh, uh hydrogen 
prototype. Wow. Uh, hey, a hybrid indie car. Wow. We're hoping some do. I just am not going to be surprised if there isn't that kind of response. So yeah, at least from this little corner of the world, Pete, I would say this hydrogen thing coming to 24 hours of Le Mans prototypes a couple years from now, it just feels actually a bit late. I think they might've missed the boat a little bit on this. Cody Oakwood. Is it too late to change the new IndyCar engine formula? It says if IMSA is attracting new blood with its LMDH prototype, why can't IndyCar follow something similar with their future engine program? Well, I have yet to figure out how to do an FAQ, frequently asked questions, an FAQ for the podcast. Because if I did, I would press the button right now, Cody. Uh, what makes an IndyCar an IndyCar and a sports prototype? A sports prototype are very different things. Obvious statement, but worth stating up front. If we think of a LMP1 car, LMP2, a DPI, LMDH, you have a wide, full-bodied car with a lot of room to fit a lot of stuff. Total opposite of an open-wheel car. In this particular case, where we have the big difference in terms of engine formulas, what would work, what would fit, and what wouldn't. If you think about an IndyCar tub, the IndyCar carbon fiber chassis, also known as the safety cell, the car is slightly wider than a larger driver's shoulder width. So narrow. The engine behind the driver is actually narrower than that. Now, granted, uh, not talking about maybe a Takuma Sato or similar who's a very short and narrow person, but if you think about the IndyCar tub itself, it is very narrow at the front because there's nothing to put in the front in terms of body parts and pieces. You move back a little bit to where the legs are. It widens out a little bit, although, again, legs aren't super wide. And it continues to widen until we get to the hips of the driver. And at that point, as wide as the tub is, it stays about that width, if not identical, all the way back. And where it stops, behind the driver, well, behind the driver and the rear firewall that the engine mates up against, we're talking about things that all line up width-wise. And in the past, some cars, engine might be a little bit wider. The V angle might be a little bit wider. Could be some other exceptions to the rule, but at least modern day. Just keep in mind that the width of the engine is roughly the width of the driver safety cell in front of it. If you look at a prototype, P1, P2, LMDH, etc., it's approximately double the width of an IndyCar chassis which means whether it is an inline four-cylinder turbo like Pete just mentioned, which would be narrower than a current IndyCar engine, or a V8, a V10, V12. The 10s and 12s aren't currently used right now, but just they have been. But think of an engine that is wider for sure, but also sits within a pretty expansive firewall because the closed cockpit 
modern-day prototype is indeed designed to have two seats in it. The second seat isn't really used. We know that. We know they put electronics here in the short future. They'll be adding a hybrid to it here in IMSA and LMDH, uh, battery and such. But you have the difference between a car that is a single person wide (laughs) and another one that is two people wide. Just talking about the tub where they sit. Therefore, the motor that can go into the back of the prototype, Cody, can be very, very wide. That means that some of those motors that manufacturers would build for LMDH would not fit in the back of an IndyCar. You could then say, well, why don't you just widen the IndyCar, right? We've got a new formula coming, just widen it. So kind of take any and all things. Got it. I hear you. The other aspect to this, this is just part of the FAQ, is there's a fairly impressive minimum, I'm sorry, um, yeah, minimum weight when it comes to the IndyCar engines. So they do, IndyCar does implement rules to make sure that they aren't making the blocks out of space helium or who knows what, but some sort of crazy exotic, sickeningly expensive, super light material. Uh, so that's a fact and has been, but even so, IndyCar motors, not very heavy. Uh, if anything, they're pretty darn light. They are not production-based. They are custom-made, every aspect, basically all custom-made. That's a big part of why they get the weight down to where it is. So what does that mean? Close on this. It means that, hey, name the manufacturer is going to put a motor in the back of their LMDH. Great. Could it be production-based? Very much so. Uh, as I've said a couple times, not necessarily here, but um, as I've said a couple times, wherever else, understand that uh, we have Porsche looking at its Cayenne twin-turbo V8 as what it might be putting into its LMDH. I uh, would also say that counter to that, I've heard very small light motor from their deep TM application is what Audi would be looking at. I wouldn't be surprised if Acura went with its twin turbo V6 again, production-based. Yeah, those production motors, they weigh nothing like an IndyCar motor. They are, by comparison, heavy, heavy, heavy. So just a, a quick little thing there to understand that even if it could fit in the much narrower confines of an IndyCar chassis and bolt to the back of it. Very high probability, Cody, that the weight itself would throw the vehicle dynamics totally out of whack. What makes an IndyCar an IndyCar is narrow, sleek, lightweight. What you don't want to have is an IndyCar that is sleek all the way up to the firewall, the back of the tub, and then look like it swallowed a giant balloon because you have to bow all the bodywork up top but also the floor and lose underbody aerodynamics because the block is wider and the footprint takes away the ability to make comparable downforce beneath the car all because this motor really is being shoehorned into something that it just doesn't fit in both weight-wise but width-wise 
balance-wise, throws everything off. So those are the reasons, Cody. Either it's not going to fit, or it's going to weigh too much, or it's going to require too many modifications and or to take performance away aerodynamically. These are all the reasons why IndyCar has a fairly specific formula that it has adhered to for, what, 40-ish years or so? I realize that a 2.65-liter V8 turbo from Cosworth and Chevy and Mercedes and Honda and all that is different than a 2.2. Now it's going to be here soon, a 2.4-liter twin-turbo V6. But the general concept of a purpose-built, lightweight, make-everything-about-the-car-happy type motor, that's the tenet of IndyCar. That's what makes an IndyCar an IndyCar. That's why shoehorning things from a production-based sports car engine into an IndyCar, that's the thing I need to put into an FAQ. Uh, Just not really going to work unless we're talking tiny, small, you name it, type volatile but very reliable sports car engines. Um, I don't see how we get there, my friend. Let's go to, where do we go? Uh, We're going to go to Flintstone. Not Flintstone, but Flintstone. Not sure I recall getting a question from you. So if this is your first time, thank you. It says, Mr. Pruitt, that's way too formal. What will the twin turbo 900 horsepower engine sound like? Send a YouTube link if you can. And tell Roger that it should be at least 1,000 horsepower. Well, I'll send you a YouTube link as soon as that twin turbo 900 horsepower engine exists. Um... Here's what I expect. I expect them to sound a little bit meaner. I know that's a hard thing to quantify. I expect them to sound a little bit angrier. I would expect them to rev faster. That's the thing where I believe we're going to note the the greatest difference. You're going to have more ferocity. So I will be expecting them to rev a little bit faster knowing that things are exploding harder and just being overall more uh, Brock Lesnar-ish. But what I don't expect is for them to sound radically different other than in the climb to reaching peak revs because I have not heard anything about peak revs changing. So 12,000 RPM has been the rev limit basically since this new formula came into play, uh, what, almost a decade ago? Um, That part, to my knowledge, isn't changing. So if we were going up to 13,000, 13,5 or 14, oh, I think many of us would just be living in a state of rapture. But I don't think we're going to get that. So the general tone, I don't expect to be much different I just believe we're going to hear drivers flapping away with their fingers as quickly as they have ever had to, to upshift as necessary. So yeah, maybe that's not, uh, maybe that's not as much as you'd hoped. Um, Tim Riley, a couple questions here, brother. I just haven't had time to get all the answers on and um, I will try. So I can really only, well, I can answer a couple here, but honestly, I think I need you to resubmit this. You say you're resubmitting, so I appreciate that. 
Um, resubmit again and give me more specifics. Say, hey, Marshall, thanks for the awesome podcast. Oh, kind of you to say that. Uh, I'll take good. That's about what I strive for, so I don't disappoint myself. Um, you ask, what is the downforce difference between road course rear wing and over rear wing? Well, there are multiple configurations of over rear wings, Tim, so that's hard to answer. Uh, super speedway, call it Indy 500 only, since that's the only big, real big speedway that we have. Uh, then, frankly, sadly, we no longer have Iowa, which I that would be pretty interesting because that's basically not too far from what you would how we would answer the first question about road course. Um, tell me, give me more specifics. What kind of oval? Um, you then ask under what circumstances would they run the oval rear wing on a road course? Again, some of the oval rear wing packages are the road course package some with one element removed and whatnot but um again it's hard to answer a question because it's not a specific you're asking for specifics on a non-specific question uh you ask how how long must a straight away be before it becomes beneficial to run the over rear wing again uh let me know what you're talking about here tim uh the third one though i can answer if volkswagen came to you and said you had to choose one driver to test an indy car at the Aralesian test track. That's the super giant one in Europe. Who would you choose and what top speed do you think they would be able to reach along the 4.5 miles straight? Uh, okay. So if we're talking crazy people, well, we always know that that answer is willpower. Um, so we would say will. And um, we he would be cursing at us, telling us to respect him after he set that top speed. Question here, though, because... If we're just talking top speed um, in an Indy car, yeah, what are we talking about, brother? Um, are we talking Indy 500 spec? Well, you know, uh, it's quite often a case where as drivers come out of turn four and fly down the front straight saying qualifying, not saying that if they didn't have a longer run into turn one that they wouldn't be able to go to a higher top speed, but it's not like there's a lot being left behind. Um, also, if we're talking about drag and tilting the rear wing back and take, you know, raising the car up front a little bit to try and break a little bit of arrow underbody performance. You know, if we're just thinking about all the things that teams do to try and make the car go as quickly as it can in a straight line, there's not a lot left to do. So I guess what I'm getting at is you talk about going around a two and a half mile oval and spinning that thing up faster and faster and faster to go qualifying. I'm sure that some more speed would be found if they could go in a straight line for a longer duration, but I don't think we're talking like, Oh, well you hit 240 at Indy and boy, if you could just go straight, for 4.5 miles it'd be 300 um you know uh, there there's some running out of stuff to trim drag wise with that configuration now we start talking about taking front and rear wings off putting some blockers beneath the car to severely reduce underbody downforce yeah, we put some fairings behind the rear wheels and possibly behind the front as well 
to drastically reduce drag and you know you do i bet you there's a ton of things that would be done differently if we're talking about extracting ultimate straight line speed um so yeah in that case again kind of fantasy stuff how much do you do what do you do so yeah uh submit again if you want tim um give me some more specifics and i will do my best to get you some answers Let's see, going to wind down a little bit here on technical stuff. You see where we're at in the good old clockety clock. Yeah, another 20-ish minutes or so maybe. Uh, let's see. Go to Dan Rice, MP. Fairly entry-level question for you this week. A few weeks back, took my kids to the IMS Museum. For the first time, on display was Alex Rossi's Indy 500 winning car from 2016. My son remembered seeing IndyCar for the first time at Long Beach that year wanted me to show my daughter that we had seen that car before as I found my photos on my phone from that race. I noticed the car in the photo was somewhat bulkier than the one sitting in front of us at the museum. I know that there's been different aero kits for the road and street courses and ovals over the years. Could you explain what the different, what differences there are between the different aero kits and how they affect the cars? Well, of course I can, Dan. Thanks for sending this in. So if we're talking Alexander's vehicle that you saw 2016 at Long Beach versus what you saw at Indianapolis in the museum, what you would have seen at Indy would have been bulkier. There would have been some items added, mainly ramping in front of the rear wheels. This is in an effort to smooth the air traveling over and past. This is drag reduction items. Things that, and this I'll just, we're talking generalisms. Alexander's car is Honda powered, Honda Aero Kit, manufactured Aero Kit at that time. Just also talk about the Chevy too. Uh, if you step away, if you step into the road course type stuff, especially the street course, they're piling on everything that can make downforce that they're allowed to use. And at the expense of drag. Hey, these straights aren't long enough at Long Beach to really penalize us a ton. We're just going to bolt it all on <laughs> because these corners, these city streets that have dirt and grime and oil and are polished from being driven over every day and all the crap that's on them, yeah, they don't really offer any grip. So since the track surface itself is doing so little to help us go quickly and to break and accelerate and corner well we're going to try and use the air to overcome to smash the car down onto the ground as hard as we can and so that's why all the things you would see on the car at indy all the fairings and smooth bits Everything that takes airflow and just treats it kindly and gently over and through and past the car, you would not see those items on your photos from Long Beach because they really wouldn't care there. It's all about the pursuit of dirty downforce, ugly downforce. Drag, we'll live with it. Just give us the maximum number. So it's a front wing array with a ton of little winglets on it. You would not have seen that in the speedway trim would have been very simplified, narrow by, comp not narrow. I'm sorry, the cord, 
that being the distance from the front of the wing to the back of the wing, would have been modest by comparison to what you saw on the Long Beach form. Would have had a bunch of winglets stacked up, a big array, cascading array upward. The back of the car, talking about wings as well, instead of a single tiny element with a modest, super, super modest cord. Uh, that's what you would have seen in speedway trim. Road course, you would have seen again. Big, giant main cord with wing elements stacked on top of that. And then on the outside of the rear wing end plates, you would have seen more little winglets bolted on there, all in the pursuit of downforce. So those are the things you would have seen. Why? Well, again, uh, big ovals. Obviously, you need downforce to perform, but not a crazy amount uh, to get through the corners. So that's why sleek and and minimal tends to be the approach you would have seen between the road course, street course kits and the the, the super speedway oval kits. Shorter ovals, it's basically road course package. They might adjust, you know, take a wing element off, cut both less on this side a little bit of modification but the short ovals it's high downforce nonetheless and in some cases like in iowa which i know i mentioned just a moment ago it's everything <laughs> it's <laughs> it's we're seriously concerned about bending the suspension there's so much downforce going on type stuff and that's not an exaggeration so yeah those are the uh those are the general things here, brother. The uh, Some of the fun stuff, and it's just a case of mental time to do this. At some point, I want to go back and do a, a good chronicling of the IndyCar manufacturer aero kit era in terms of outrageous performance numbers and capabilities. Did one piece however many years ago. I uh, got a lot of data from I think the 2016 mid-Ohio race, of which I've used a tiny amount in print, but I I still have not used all that in a column. I should, but it just occurs to me that, yeah, maybe I should do a deeper thing. Because this, just for the performance geeks among us, if you think about the metrics that impress us in sports, Right, the 40-yard dash being measured, the combine in the NFL. Um, I don't know what else. Uh, bat speed, uh, speed of the ball and distance of, of you know a home run being hit in Major League Baseball. Some of these things where you go, oh my gosh, <laughs> thank you for measuring that because now I have a proper understanding of how incredible this particular person is or whatever it is that was just done we have i mean we're all numbers and data and racing so that's not strange to us but what i think would help which is why i want to do this is to just try and put this era this really wacky know that it lasted three years 2015 through 2017 but really by the end of 2016 there was a all stop in terms of development, knowing that in 2018, the arrow kit we see now, the universal arrow kit was coming. But that 2015, 2016 era, it really does stand out to me 
and I'm making a note here while I'm talking. Let me grab myself a little Sharpie so I don't forget. I need to do a deeper dive into that. Hopefully enough time has passed where some who I asked back then who declined to help or provide some information, maybe some of that will change now that we're many multiple years behind. We'll see, but it's just an era, Dan, for sure, where we need to put some serious numbers to a lot of things because I don't think we're ever going to see that again. It was so insane. Um, oh, yeah. But it was for that, you know, for the stat geek, really. The average fan, I don't know if any they would care, but for those who I consider all of you listening, the real hardcore fans of IndyCar, it, it's, if you like, I don't know if you like, but you know, if you've ever seen any bodybuilding competitions or weightlifting competitions, the God, what are those shows that's always on CBS Sports Network, the Mr. Universe, Mr. Atlas, strongest man in the world type stuff, where it's the okay, lift a double decker bus. Just pick it up. <laughs> Just go ahead. That's that's it. Pick it up. And it's you know, some guy does. I mean, of course they don't, but you look at some of the things and you go, okay, oh my God. So they keep moving up and wait to this thing where you go, it's impossible. And ultimately someone is going to be able to lift that thing or do that thing where you're all just staring at it going, that is not human. We had that happen for two years in IndyCar. So hopefully I will find time and folks to share more with me to allow to bring you that story uh, and some tales from it uh, properly. Uh, Dan Gallagher says, related to discussions of ride height, spring rate, et cetera, what is the actual change in ride height between, say, St. Petersburg, Road America, and Texas Motor Speedway? Um, I can only give you, I mean, I reached out to an engineer friend of mine. It's been long enough since I did this, Dan, to give you a number that I remember off the top of my head. Of course, Engineers aren't going to say, well, Marshall, our ride height at St. Pete at the front of the car was this and the back of the car was that. And at Road America was this and that. So bearing in mind, we're not going to get actual numbers. But the note that I got from a friend, current race engineer, very good race engineer, um, said you would actually be surprised how similar the ride heights were or are between St. Pete and Texas, for example, uh, says might only be a quarter inch difference um, and then made the note which is a basic one from an engineering standpoint but just good to know for those who aren't aware said the uh, one thing to keep in mind between the two tracks here and I know I'm just skipping Road America but if you think of St. Pete which is a little bit bumpy but again uh, something where you need to generate a lot of grip through setup choices compared to the track is really helping you against street course no grip at all you have to set the car up in a way to make its grip because the track won't be doing it um, rear ride height tends to be a little bit higher car moves around a little bit more but also main thing is squatting down under power um, you need the thing to be able to squat and go because if you set it up stiff enough high enough, etc., or too high, or even just too low. Um, a, you're not going to go too stiff because you wouldn't do that, but even if you went too low, uh, you'd be smacking the back of the car off the ground the whole time, every time the driver hit the throttle. So, but yeah, 
interesting there. Not that much of a difference between that street course and the intermediate speedway like Texas, Dan, uh, but just that ride height, rear ride height thing to keep in mind, uh, very specific to a street course. Uh, Lance Snyder, Minister of Mirth of our show, corner worker par excellence, by the way. Someone who, what, your last was the last event you did, Lance, Rolex 24 Daytona. So listen to that, dear friends. Not only a weekly contributor to our Week in IndyCar and usually Week in Sports Car Show, not only is he a member of the Pruday listener subset and a participant in the IRL Pruday uh, iRacing series, all of which I've got nothing to do with, but it's got the first four letters of my last name wedged in. Uh, Lance also is a frequent, frequent volunteer of his time as a flagger and track marshal at professional motor racing events. How cool is that? He says, with the schedule pushed out a bit, has there been any headway with the aero screen and cooling solutions for the driver? Funny you should ask. So wrote a story in December after speaking with Jay Fry. Asked that question. He said some things were coming. He and I were meant to speak last week. He rang on Friday just as we were walking out the door for the rest of the day. And so we were supposed to try and reconnect today, but we didn't, Lance. So this is among the numerous questions I have to pose. Since we last spoke a couple months ago, uh, what have you guys done? What are you doing? What aren't you doing? Steve Grinstead, sending this in for a second time, says, I'll be snarkier if I have to do it a third. I don't remember if I mentioned this up front, but if you send in your questions and I don't get to them and you really want them answered, send them in again. And the snarkier, meaner, and more aggressive you are while mentioning, hey, dummy, I'm sending this in a second time or a third or a fourth. I believe there's been a fourth once or twice. That's uh, taken that long. Um, the stronger the chances are of me reading it because I love it when y'all insult me and say funny, snarky things. Uh, it says, how do teams for private tests get their tires to the track? Do they pay Firestone to show up? Or do they have to get the tires shipped there? Hope all is well with you and your family. In most instances, unless we're talking about a large test where half the grid's going to be there, it's unlikely to get Firestone to ship out a truck and support personnel for you know two teams going somewhere. Also, some limits on the amount of tires um, available. So in pretty much every instance I can think of, Steve, talking about private testing, a couple of teams turning up and whatnot, they have them mounted and bring them with them. So they show up at the track with tires on rims and overpressured and tend to bleed them down and then go use them. I am forgetting a little bit. I believe the protocol that was put in place last season, I think it's in Indianapolis. Firestone is doing mounting uh, for teams and getting all that done in advance just to limit the back and forth and whatnot at the track. So Indy 500 is a bit of a different bird, obviously, with 36 sets or whatever the number is. But for uh, pretty much everywhere else, I believe... More or less, all this was done in advance. So anyways, yeah, they've come up with a pretty good protocol here, Steve, and it's also just been that way for quite some time that, hey, if Team X is 
going out to wherever to test for a day or two, well, they will get all everything mounted and get rolling from there. I can tell you that for non-IndyCar teams, whether back in the day with teams that I worked with, whether it was Atlantic teams, Indy Lights teams, it's not uncommon to have your own tire mounting and balance equipment in the shop to do it yourself. Because, And I can also tell you there have been times where I've had to go down to the local, you know, uh, Fred's Tire Emporium because either the team you're with doesn't have any of it or it broke and you need to be there with whomever working with your magnesium wheel <laughs> trying to fit a whatever brand tire onto it um, and praying and hoping that the thing isn't scraped up, cracked, caught on fire, who knows what, but yeah, I'll, pretty much every shop you go to like that, they're going to have a policy that says uh, no customers on the shop floor. But you kind of got to go out there because you're really worried that the rims that are being mounted might be worth more than some of the cars uh, that they have up on the racks. But yeah, uh, these days, not so much of an issue, Steve. I'm going to take a sip of water here, by the way. RIT Indy Racing from Reddit asks, with the creation of the Indy Autonomous Challenge and Robo Race, do you see a point where OEMs will push for an autonomous racing series to show off their autonomous systems? Currently, both the uh, Indy Autonomous Challenge and Robo Race are more focused on university students in the continuation of the 2004 DARPA Grand Challenge. Not at the moment, not at, not at any point in time that I can see immediately. I am fascinated by the Indy Autonomous Challenge, though. I spoke with a friend who's part of one team, and wow, what they were telling me about the people involved, the amount of engineers, the university level, the coaching, the this, the that, it was truly stupendous. And then they told me about, yeah, but we just heard that this much bigger university over here has... 10 times the amount of engineers and all kinds of stuff. So do I see Ford, Chevy, Honda, Chrysler, this, that, and the other Toyota saying we need a racing platform to demonstrate our autonomous systems within our vehicles. No, I just don't. Could that change in my lifetime? Of course. I just don't don't foresee this being a place competition wise where manufacturers feel a need. They have to do something so that their system can be demonstrated as better than the rest to then get people to buy it. If we get to a place, I would say where every car, seemingly every car has some form of self-driving mode and so many things where the driver is just entrusting their lives to autonomous systems every day. And many people are, most people are. And there's a real question as to what's better, what's worse, and so on. Maybe in that example, I could see a, well, then let's, maybe we need a need to go, maybe there's a need to go put this, on track to settle it once and for all type mindset. 
I just would say that if we were to get to that day, it feels like it's going to be a long ways away. Uh, okay, where do we go? Where do we go? Where do we go? We go to Drew Wetzel. I think you sent in two, Drew. I see one that's been selected here, so there we go. Um, let me see where we're at in the clock. Yeah, we're uh, we're going to go into overtime just a tiny bit. Probably push out to an hour 45-ish, but uh, that's about all I can do, y'all. Um, Drew, you say, uh, talking about IndyCar tech, gaps to the auto industry, says, let's say Jay Fry hires you to create IndyCar's engine chassis and tech roadmap for 2020 and beyond. Uh, How do you like to see the cars evolve to keep up or lead the changing auto industry? Um, well, thanks, man. I don't know if I have a lot more to offer here, Drew, than what I've mentioned in the last couple of weeks. If I'm really just boiling all that down into one quick answer, it is, hey, the, I can't even pronounce it. It's so many letters. The super crazy millionth, trillionth of a second reactive electro dampers on the new Chevrolet Corvette. I want to see that type of stuff on an Indy car. I want to see adaptive electronic everything brought into IndyCar. Would this just be kind of current tech with some of the higher-end road cars, possibly? So therefore, it's more of a marketing and demonstration thing than pioneering things in IndyCar type deal? Yeah, okay, I understand that. But... I like the idea of bringing as much safety and performance electronics into IndyCar, not from a taking away from the driver standpoint, but from improving performance of the vehicle going faster and also adding safety components. I think if IndyCar could be seen as a place where We know it's risky. We know it's the riskiest form of racing in the U.S., basically. If we're talking, you know, high echelon professional racing, NASCARs, there's, I'm not putting down one to promote another. I'm just saying we know that it takes a particular kind of crazy for people to race an IndyCar on a super speedway or a Texas or wherever else and some other tracks that we go to. And that's why we watch it and celebrate it because we can't believe that these things exist. Therefore, is that a place where safety, you know, hey, you've got some new safety advancements or ideas, electronic warning and whatnot, and positioning and location, and hey, whether it's looking forward, behind, both sides, these are things that happen on road cars today. I get it, but what if IndyCar were to, I mean, there's, <laughs> you want to talk about cut and thrust and unexpected stuff happening uh, it ain't happening nearly as quickly on highways and streets. It sure is an IndyCar. What a arena to develop such things. That stands out. No, it's a general one, but that stands out for sure. Um, on the engine side, you know, the, the hybridization jumps out. Obviously not as a spec thing, but hey, what ideas do you have? How could we bring these things in? How can we compete with ideas there? For sure, it's the choice that wasn't taken with this new formula, but that's one I would say we need to ask. We need to talk about it, see if manufacturers would really truly come in if we open that up. If enough of them say yes, then maybe we need to rethink our spec idea 
Fuels, I would say, is another huge one. Need to admit my ignorance, Drew, with the Speedway uh, folks that supply IndyCar's fuel. I don't know how wide-reaching they are, how big of a research-type company they are. Um, We know that with some other fuel suppliers that have been involved in racing for a long time, they do tons of R&D. I don't know if Speedway is that way. It's not me saying they aren't. It's not me saying, you know, throwing shade at them. I just don't know. If they are those folks getting and developing something as close to zero bad stuff coming out of the exhaust as possible, <laughs> that would be pretty amazing. Um, uh, if I had to give you the, the number one thing I would implement for this roadmap, something you might have heard me say before, Drew, it would be abandoning the spec approach spec and or single supplier approach in every area probably but tires uh and i'm why am i being a little bit hypocritical by saying we've got to abandon it oh but we got to keep it in one area look (laughs) no disrespect to any other tire brand but if you were to ask more or less every indycar driver hey would you want to switch to another brand they would say no even some of those who are very critical of the performance aspects of the current tires privately. Of course they wouldn't do it publicly. Um, there's a comfort and safety level that comes with Firestone and IndyCar that nobody wants to go away from, but outside of that, yeah, the big thing drew. And I know that I mentioned a number of smaller things, whether it's adaptive, this or electronic, that needing to go away from, Hey, our electronics supplier is, compared it's all singular instead of plural our elect our electronic suppliers are and here's the name of hopefully 10 different companies involved hey fuel wise guess what i would love for indycar if indycar did one thing if indycar changed one thing drew said everything else we're doing we're going to stay spec all right hybrid formula stay in the same single supplier on this that and the other you name it and but we're going to open up fuel and we're going to make IndyCar the one place where come one, come all, bring your non-diesel thoughts because I don't foresee IndyCar going diesel anytime soon. But hey, you want to go carbon neutral? You want to go zero, again, bad stuff coming out the exhaust? Let us be your laboratory. Let's do that together. Then maybe actually we wouldn't have to do a lot a lot of the negative things about batteries and the electrification side that doesn't get written about or isn't is actively not discussed do you need lots of electric vehicles if indeed you can find and develop a fuel that stops pumping bad stuff into the air into the environment into the ground settling into the ground why don't we open that up be that place no one's doing that if we did that alone drew i think that'd be amazing and i have to believe if that was something where name a wide variety of petroleum companies uh we're all working to come up with a synthetic fuel to do that oh boy that could be pretty darn big that would make headlines outside of the racing world 
Uh, Doogie Davies, you talk about, I know you've sent this in more than once, about multiple layouts, talking about Indianapolis Motor Speedway's road course, um, asking do we think IndyCar might return and use Pocono's Roval layout again. I don't, I don't know if that's been used uh, in a professional capacity for a really long time. Um, yeah, uh, I know a couple of folks have written in. I think I've even said I'm all for one indie road course configuration for round one and then a different one for whether it's the next day or uh, if IndyCar comes back later in the year for a Harvest Grand Prix type thing. Um, yeah, I'm look different. I'm not averse to different at all. Uh, I'm, I'm even up for a loop to loop or a jump, a stadium super trucks jump. I mean, yeah, just do something different. Uh, I'm down for that altogether. Um, you also just put in something here towards the end and I'll, I'll read it because you wrote it and I appreciate you saying this, but you don't have to say stuff like this says you say, admire the strength and dedication you have towards your wife. Uh, hoping for positive news for the both of you this year. I appreciate that. I really do. I, I always never, ever know how to respond to stuff like that, Doogie. And so none of, none of this is negative or critical at all, but I have never know how to respond to that other than to just say thank you because what I want to say is that's just like, that's just doing the what you're supposed to do, right? <laughs> there's, I don't think there's strength or dedication or any of that stuff. I think if you are a woman married to a man, and the man is going through struggles and strife and physical ailments, I just assume that you take care of him uh, and vice versa. And whether you're married or not, if you're dedicated to one another, uh, I just, I don't know. Uh, again, I pr- really appreciate what you wrote, brother, but I, I just don't think it's noteworthy. And I really don't. I think that there's nothing admirable or noteworthy about it. Uh, I just think it's what you sign up for and commit to when you commit to another person. So I realize that it's a little more in depth, but you know, whether it's taking out the garbage or doing the dishes or vacuuming, like that's just all part of the commitment you make to one another. So I don't know. I appreciate it though. Uh, I feel I said up front that I thought there was something else I should mention and Damn it. I know I could go back and edit it in and probably make it sound like I it was in there from the beginning, but let me take a very late end of show moment to express um, my great appreciation and condolences to our listener, Louise Smith, who I read lost her husband. I believe uh, she said he was dealing with ALS. I believe, and I apologize if I'm wrong, Louise. Louise, who's been fighting ovarian cancer on her own while caring for her husband who just lost his life. So, oh boy, Um, so sorry. So, so sorry for you, Louise. And uh, I guess that's why that stood out to me right here, Doogie, because you want to talk about admiration of strength and dedication. Uh, Louise... Fighting ovarian cancer, caring for her very ill husband, losing him, and maintaining her strength to keep fighting for herself. Uh, Let's just all say, Louise, we love you, love you. We don't know you in person, many of most of us, but you're part of this little family of ours on the show, so 
just want to say that we love you, Louise. Cannot imagine the strength that you have to summon and have had to summon, and also the character. Like, if you've had a chance to follow any of Louise's social media posts for the last year or so, (sighs) you'd never know. I mean, you'd know, but you'd never know because uh, she just brings a lot of light and warmth to what she does. So um, thinking of you, Louise, and thinking of your husband. Okay, uh, I said I'm going to stop, so I need to stop. Uh, I'm going to roll through here very quickly and see if there are any other things to get to before we say farewell. Uh, Casey Coolidge, you mentioned seeing something about uh, Jer Hildebrand entering an IndyCar to do Pike's Peak. Uh, and I know a couple of you have asked me about that. I did speak on the telephone with our friend JR. Uh, he did ask, he did say, Hey, we hold off on talking about that for a little while. And I said, of course. So I'm just taking your question to acknowledge, saw it, know about it. Old friend has said, Hey, could you hold off on doing anything about it right now? Uh, it would actually be positive. So, um, that's what we're doing here. Our good pal, Lawrence Cunningham, who's always doing giant things uh, in terms of donating and and helping whenever charitable things come across his uh, feeds asks about helmets uh, says he and his wife uh, so they saw dario showing his helmet collection uh, says your wife asked if the drivers pay for their own helmets and how often um do they change them um depends who it is lawrence so a dario Franchitti, yes uh, he will have a supply contract, would have had a supply contract with a uh, chosen manufacturer or manufacturers throughout his career. It's kind of rare when a driver goes their whole career using one brand. Some have, not all though, very few. Uh, but yeah, they'll have contracts that say, hey, uh, you give me X amount of free ones per year. I'll wear it. We'll have the logos on it. You can use me in your promotional stuff. They tend not to be cheap, so it's a, it's a good little back scratching there's also support that comes with that, whether it's new visor, tear-offs, you name it. Um, that that has often been the case throughout the years. Sometimes you get drivers who haven't exactly made it, who know that their rivals are getting deals, so they'll ask for the same and won't get them and have to pay for them. Sometimes you'll get road to indie drivers who don't have the money um, and beg and get uh, some will just think because they've done well in whatever level of junior open wheel that they deserve something and are often met with uh, not overly polite responses. So 100% different from driver to driver, Lawrence. But yeah, uh, the vast vast majority in IndyCar would not say all, but the vast majority do not pay for their helmets. They are then promoted as using those helmets companies certainly try and get their money back, raising awareness and whatnot, letting folks know that uh, some pretty darn good drivers are using their lids. Uh, as for how often do they change them, you know, the, for what I've heard, it's often two helmets a year, maybe three. Obviously, if there's a big crash or more than one big crash, helmet gets damaged or rattled around. Of course, there'll be some concessions made, but I'd say two a year is not uncommon from what I know, maybe three. Uh, so that's about that. Um, Dustin Marlowe, uh, your question about documentaries and TV and stuff. Send that back in again, brother. Uh, we'll try to get to that early in next week's show. 
uh, Jake Ziller. Let's see, talking about cold weather, especially his part of the year where it's reaching minus 30 uh, with wind chill and actual temps are negative 8 degrees. Got me to thinking what's the coldest or most foul weather open wheel race been a part of or that you remember. Um, boy, I can think of many. This isn't a race. It's just a test. But um, I was happy one time, maybe, I don't know, it was like 2006, 2007, which I'd already kind of been moving into this new media career a little bit, but I was still doing road to indie level race engineering quite often. I think we had a test at the, it's between here in Northern California and LA, Southern California, the Button Willow track about halfway, uh, actually more than halfway, but anyways, uh, three, four hours South of us here in the Bay area. And I don't remember whether it was a December test or a January test, but, uh, in a pro Mazda, um, and it was just due to get down to minus a million overnight. I'm exaggerating, of course, but it was just going to be super cold overnight. And we were trying to, th- one thing you don't want is a rotary motor. Those said twin rotor engines. You really don't want that thing to freeze uh, and then get stuck. And then, yeah, you're in really bad shape. So uh, what we did was I asked, I think our truckie, to run to the local Walmart and come back with a number of electric blankets. And so for where we had parked in the paddock for the test the next morning, um, kept the car in the transporter, obviously, uh, and found, I guess, one of the outlets, ran some extension cords from an outlet out to the truck, plugged the truck in, and then plugged a number of the electric blankets in and wrapped the gearbox wrapped i think the motor as best we could knowing that i'm exaggerating it i don't think it got down to negative numbers overnight but it was meant to be nasty and i gotta admit it was a little bit of a thing borrowed from indycar uh, indycar times of doing things to keep things warm overnight or otherwise um sometimes you just pack things with blankets hoping that they act as a bit of a barrier but in this instance uh, out in a little bit of the boonies and nowhere, just had the uh, bright idea to go buy some electric blankets, keep things nice and warm overnight. And when we came in in the morning and got the thing opened up, it was actually vaguely warm inside. Uh, and everything fired up right away and was super happy. So I know that's not a crazy bad weather one. Uh, I mean, I remember tests being snowed out at Texas Motor Speedway. <laughs> having to you know send everything down there having to come back because it freaking snowed and we're like we're in dallas fort worth and it's snowing i didn't think it did that here uh have been hit with barrages of rain so deep and so bad that uh indy lights races have been pushed back uh after the IndyCar race um i don't know uh there are some other kind of run and hide ones lightning going on uh where you run under various tent i mean it's not an uncommon thing, I guess, is what I'm getting at, Jake. It's uh, I wish I could say, oh, that one or two times. It's like, eh, if you've been doing racing long enough, it's a, yeah, that happens two or three times a year. And we're just talking IndyCar here. Uh, sports car stuff, yeah, there have been some years at Petit Le Mans, at Le Mans as well. Uh, heck, Daytona, you just throw your socks and shoes away. No kidding. Um 
you remember to bring multiple pairs and there have been times no joke where i'm like yeah i could wring my shoes out and i could do all kinds of things and i like them uh you know get the mud and the this and the, uh, not even gonna bother straight into the garbage and the socks too um so yeah not a crazy surprise uh jameen tuttle you ask about any car video production send that back in again brian burrell interesting thing here you're wanting to know all kinds of things about my podcast and the business side of it um i'll answer some of it not a lot of it though because i don't know asking people to tell you all their business stuff uh usually don't get answers for that so mp sometimes would you or sometime would you explain we'll close on this um how your business model for podcasting works i know nothing about it so i'm just curious you have sponsors who i assume they pay your expenses what does that entail and maybe some type of paycheck uh do you have to pay any guests does it cost money to get on the app stores do you have tiers of sponsorship various dollar amounts is it fairly consistent for most indycar podcasts uh go in reverse here couldn't tell you for other indycar podcasts i don't have any affiliation with any other indycar podcasts i'm not saying i don't know people i don't know some people who have them but in terms of like hey we're linked up somehow and we tell each other our business uh don't really have any of that so i couldn't tell you uh do you have tiers of sponsorship or various dollar amounts uh i could tell you that the way i've treated my podcast is exactly identical to what i've done in racing uh, for many, 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 many years, whether it's running my own team or other people's teams or whatever. And that is going out and seeking sponsors and having sponsors for the show compared to um, here's an advertising deal where based on X amount of traffic, X amount of downloads, you get a one tenth of 1% of a penny for each like I'm just not into the chasing downloads to cover the costs of what we do here. That's a very specific approach that I've taken. Can't tell you if others don't also do the same thing. I just know that I approach this with that specific thing in mind, no different than what I would do in racing, such as I don't want to be in a position where I am, having to conjure up shows and content strictly for the sake of getting downloads because that's the mechanism to money coming in. That to me, I, I'm not, that's just the opposite. It's like saying, hey, uh, you, you were going to come up with a pay-to-play type thing as a driver or a team, so uh, we need you to finish third in order for you to get paid okay, well, then all of a sudden teams are going to be doing everything they can to finish third, not necessarily things that always would you would consider legal or that had scruples about them. Um, the go out, represent yourself well, achieve to the best of your ability, and show us value, and we're good. That's the general racing sponsorship model. Um, that's the same one that I've taken. So, yeah, because otherwise, like, uh, just as a very quick sidebar here, like, I look at, you know, some YouTube channels, and I know that I said we were going to stop at an hour and 45, and this is going to be about two hours, so I apologize. Some of you know, 
my ability to tell time and predict time. It's horrible. Um, see a number of YouTube channels, whether they're racing or not. And we know that monetizing YouTube is something that a lot of people try and do. And there's just a lot of content that gets put up. It's all clickbait. It's just purely to try and get people to click and watch and to get money. And that's why I've just never wanted that to be the approach here taken with the podcast. So uh, that's why I just look at year long sponsors and partners um, asking about what they pay for. And it's, that's, you know, that's between myself and my partners um, in the show. We'll just tell you in a very general sense what I try and do is give my partners, those sponsors, unquestionable value. And I'll just share one little inside baseball thing. When we hit some sort of traffic milestone, whether, hey, we hit some new big number for the month or for the year or the whatever, I'll share those things with all everybody right some will be really happy and celebratory and congratulatory and all those things others eh, don't really care and i love that because while those are good indicators that there's something positive here and something that has traction and people are listening and it's growing and all these things yada 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 that's really not the main reason my partners are here. It's because we have this kind of fun community. We all engage when we can get back to the tracks together and do live shows. Then that's going to be another gear. I can't wait to use again, but it's just kind of a, a, a being part of a community and doing good things together, creating some good, interesting, fun, amusing content together. And that's what I wanted, and I'm very fortunate to have that, Brian. I don't want the next thing I'm going to say, which is going to be the last thing, uh, to sound strange or twisted or or vainglorious because it's not meant to be. But I have had more companies inquire about being sponsors than I have ever said yes to. and that's nothing negative or critical against anyone. It's just there's a specific type of, of partner that I'm looking for that fits the family communal. Let's do good stuff together and value that more than anything approach than having needs or values placed in any other area. And so I'm fortunate that we're able to also show downloads and numbers and show all kinds of behind the scenes metrics that prove it's all really good and it's all really working and you're getting amazing value in return. The thing I love most is for the most part, eh, I don't care. (laughs) It's like being here, like being with y'all, like taking part in this, like having us as a part of their worlds. So that's the approach, brother. The the money in this and what it costs. And it like, you know, again, I can't think of many businesses that are going to answer that question. But uh, as for everything else, yeah, um, really thankful. So thankful to you. Thankful to Cooper Tires. Really thankful to the Justice Brothers. Really thankful 
to Toronto Motorsports, which, by the way, sent me some new shirts from our new show designs for this year. I got to uh, try those on and make sure my fat butt can fit in them, hopefully. But thanks to all of you. Thanks to all of our partners. Look forward to speaking again next week here on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, your week in IndyCar listener Q&A.